Stella. Funny Stella. Running amidst the trees. Who's there? I said as I stood in my head. And nobody answered me. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. And this is Trav. Welcome to the Fringeworthy Podcast, your only podcast of interdimensional exploration and adventure. Thank you for joining us this week and every week as we explore the amazing Fringeworthy universe. This week, we're going to recap of our adventures at Gen Con and talk about some upcoming demos that we're going to be doing at Dragon Con and elsewhere. First of all, big announcement, Fringeworthy Novel is nearing completion. Richard was giving out pre-release copies of it at his booth. So any of you who remembered our release saying, go up and tell him Mellorbate now has a copy in your hands. We'd love to hear from you guys as to what you think of it. Feel free to post a message on our forums at www.tritacgamers.com or over at www.groups.yahoo.com slash Fringeworthy on our website, the Fringeworthy Podcast. I haven't had a chance to read yet, so I'm looking forward to it. I was busy. I ran four demos of TriTac products while Ooh. I was at Gen Con. I ran two demos of Fringeworthy and two demos of Bureau 13. The two demos of Fringeworthy I ran were Crisis at St. Louis, uh, at Louis Hope. Uh, which is a alternate universe, uh, alternate time adventure taking place in the 1600s off the coast of South Carolina where the French have established a colony and are having some difficulties with the American Indians. As we've explained before, is that one of the reasons that there is no prime directive in IDET is that they plan on having continuing contact with these worlds. Therefore, there's no point in trying to maintain some kind of isolation because they're planning on contacting them. Even if they're primitive, they still have a lot to offer. They still have resources as far as keeping Hatsumi Basie equipped and, and, and fully functional during the uh, six months when it's iced over during the wintertime. Also, these worlds have lots of resources, both uh, in extinct animals and other things, especially since the timeline of this adventure places it early in the timeline. So Earth still has plenty of ex extinct species that needs to be repopulated, and a world in the 1600s is just perfect for that. Now, this would be an anthropologist's dream. You know, He could project forward and see what would happen to the, the North American continent if the Native Americans weren't so easily overrun. You get to see the cultures as they were, keeping up and finding out how these cultures lived in the moment is fantastic for IDED. Yeah, they'd want to keep open relations. And a lot of the history of the American Indians, uh, especially the, the Plains Indians, is entirely verbal. It's not entirely handed down. And, of course, the slaughter of so many people, there were many, many stories and histories that were lost. So coming to this world, being that it is a relatively close analogy to Earth Prime, they're going to be able to get a lot of the stories. Even if they're not true, they will seem true. And there's a lot of Native American cultures that will feel 
benefited from this aspect of friends exploration. What other role-playing game has you asking these kind of questions and having these kind of discussions about adventures? Usually, you go on an adventure and you kill a bunch of stuff and you get some treasure and you trade it in and that's it. You know, the, you don't really talk about, hey, you know, what's going to happen after you know our characters leave there? You don't even think about it. But that's one of the really cool things about Fringeworthy is if it's like a social experiment. It's a true classic science fiction concept. There's a sense that the story doesn't end when you leave. These NPCs all have histories. They all had a life. They have a culture. And then when you interact with them, you change their culture. When you come back later, there's every reason to believe that they're going to be different or they're going to be active upon the things that you suggested. It's very unusual oh, yeah. in a lot of games where it's so much of a sandbox. Friends really is a sandbox and that your campaign is your campaign, but there's a sense that there's an ongoing drama that sooner or later that uh, everything that you do is going to have an effect. Oh, yeah. I mean, in your game, you, you may not get very far out because the players may say, well, why, would, why do we keep going to the next world? We've got this whole world here to, to, to look at and, and explore. Why do you want to keep shoving us out to the next world? We want to explore this one for a while. How fast is the idea and you need to expand through the, uh, through the Fringe Pass? It's about as fast as they want to expand. Okay, but another answer would be until they find something useful to Earth. Yeah. Okay, when they do, then they say, okay, let's stop on this world and spend some more time. But you're right. The players yeah. are going to ultimately drive the campaign. And so the more interesting you make the world, the more hooks you have into the characters' lives, the more they're going to enjoy the campaign. And I'm fully behind that. There was your first Fringeworthy demo, Bruce. What was your second one? The second demo was Escape from Gilligan's Pocket Stop, where the uh, explorers go through the portal and they find themselves on an island. <laughs> it's not a desert island. It's not a deserted island. It's Gilligan's Island. Castaways were all there. They had to figure out some way of getting them off the island. The, the biggest issue they had to deal with, of course, was figuring out how they got there in the first place. Because there was no reason for there to be all those people on a plane. In this case, the Gilligan's uh, tour was on a plane. Suddenly finding themselves on an island. It's, it's, it's never 100%. This was a good opportunity for them to experience the concept of a parallel universe versus an alternate universe. Yeah, so did you ever explain why they had enough uh, clothing for, for six or seven for six seven weeks? <laughs> yeah, I had an answer for that. Ah. Because since it was a pocket stop, all kinds of things were constantly floating in to that lagoon. Oh, there you go. Including women's wardrobes and you know men's painter's pants they seem to always be wearing. And an occasional interesting thing like a World War II mine that was sitting right in the middle of the lagoon. What, no uh, Japanese mini-subs? Well, not at this particular time. It, uh, I'm sure that has happened in the past. Yeah. They, they met all the different castaways and had an interesting time. And were, were very uh, preemptive in dealing with Gilligan and the possible uh, chaos that he couldn't do. But I'm not going to spoil it for anybody who might be planning on playing this at DragonCon because we are going to be planning on uh, rerunning these adventures. Uh, if you're coming to DragonCon... You know, you can always come by. We can probably fit you in. We'd love to see you. Don't be a stranger. Come to DragonCon and see us. And prizes will be provided. They were provided at Gen Con, and we'll provide even more because we're local. But I'm not the only one who's going to be giving prizes away at DragonCon. Someone else is giving demos. Who's that? I don't know. Who's that? <laughs> no, that, that would be me. Yes. <laughs> Bruce is going to be taking up the D20 version of, of Frenchworthy, and I'm going to be running the Savage Worlds version. 
every single person, and I'm not talking about just the players, but every person that uh, the podcast or everyone else, as soon as they said, we're working on a Savage World version of Fringeworthy, they all said, oh, yeah, I've got to see that when it comes out. Guys, we got to put a fire under ourselves and get this version out because there is clearly some people ready to jump on it and help us uh, promote it. Those who come to my event, because I'm, I'm just running one event three times, that's uh, the same event, is going to be one of the big plot points in the book. You know, you'll be one of the first people to, to actually play this plot point. It'll be slightly different when it goes into the book because uh, at a convention, I've got to railroad people a little bit more than I would in the book. You know, the, the game master will, of course, have a lot more control and a lot more say on how things go because he's going to have to cater it to his players and everything. Like, I'm handing people characters, and these characters have been specially designed to run, you know, for a con for this adventure. Yeah, you should definitely come out. You should come to my table. I, I ran this up at uh, OGC up in New Hampshire, and every single person who played it loved it. They had a great time. It's called Deutschland Uberalis. The premise is that Hitler got the bomb. He used it, and he's managed to take over uh, just about everything. He's not in control of America or China, but he's got them in check. The adventurers, they have a contact with the French resistance, and they're being sent in to steal the plutonium that he has left over. He's managed to manufacture, steal the scientists that he stole that can do something with the plutonium and destroy the factory. It's a really fun Indiana Jones-ish, seat-of-your-pants kind of adventure. It's mostly action. There's a little bit of time I take in between action scenes for the characters to interact with the you know the environment and to do things, but it's uh, it's a good time. I'm running my demos in the afternoon on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and Blix is running his demos in the evening at Dragon Con. And of course, by the time you hear this, I'll actually have run my Fringeworthy campaign, which is also going to be a plot point in the book uh, at Dragonflight. Okay, so Trav, what are you doing? All right, at Conclave, which is in Romulus, Michigan, at the Crown Plaza Hotel, October 8th through 10th, I will be running, most likely on the Saturday, midday, a Fringeworthy D20 game, a pulp-style game. You know, the Two-Fist Adventurers, Guns Blazing, Shadow-type, I'll be running that. I don't have the exact time yet. I have yet to talk to the people who are running the rather small gaming room at Conclave. But, yeah, I will be running a game myself. I've been working on it now for about the past month. <laughs> and I even have the title for it all set. Now, I've already sprung it on the people in the TriTech forums, but pulled back on the players yet for a while because I might have to run from the gaming room after I spring it on them. Well, mum's the word. <laughs> well, if you check the forums, I've already said it. Fringeworthy Podcast. Speaking of the forums, we've been going over our forum posts. We realize that there's a lot of people out there who aren't part of the uh, TriTacGamers.com forums. So we thought we'd go over some of the comments and uh, some of our answers made there and see if there's anything we can do to uh, enhance your game out there uh, in the Fringeworthy fandom. John, can you read the first question? Okay. Well, this is a response to episode on Plots That Work, Part 2. Uh, it's by General Tristan. In the campaign I ran, as a means of supplementing missing or deficient skills in the party, I periodically 
fast forward the campaign eight weeks with the rationale of the PCs continuing their educations. And then he has this list of, geez, how many? What? 30 or so uh, different skills. The things like um, wilderness survival and fieldcraft or basic cultural analysis, religions and mythologies, or things like interpersonal communications, nonverbal and symbolic, to uh, covert operations, disguised makeup and acting, things like that. Well, he was essentially gifting them with a lot of skills that would make them more effective as explorers. Yes. He does actually have a question at the very end. What other methods have you used for dealing with the issues of essential skills? Well, the real question, do you need to give people what he calls essential skills? When you look at savage worlds, they can be broken down into one skill called knowledge, fringe operations, or knowledge, fringe knowledge. There isn't a skill such as that in the book, by the way. Yeah, but Savage Worlds, there's the knowledge skill, and knowledge skill has a focus. and that's So, yeah, most of these things actually would break down into, you know, knowledge cultural analysis, knowledge covert operations, knowledge geology. Uh, if I'm hearing you correctly, John, is you're saying that all these skills actually fall under the umbrella of some of these more generalized skills that are already in the D20 Modern or in Savage Worlds. Yeah, at least they're part of the uh, they're, they're a version of the knowledge focus skill. But you, you know, you have a knowledge skill and it has a certain focus, and you, you the focus can be as specific as you want or as general as you want. Yeah, I'll, t- I'll tell you right now because we've been playing Savage Worlds pretty steady for over a year now. It's not conducive to having that many skills. Um, yeah. The way you get advances and the way you spend your points, it's just person is playing a character who has skills in those fields, when he goes up against another character who was made with the same amount of points, who didn't pay attention to that kind of stuff, he'd be obliterated in no time if they came into any kind of conflict. You know, when you go up in advance, you get one advance. And you have to pick either uh, an edge or, you know, or a skill, or you can get two skills. If you already have them, you can raise two skills uh, as long as they're underneath your stat level. So, I mean, it's just like you don't advance that quickly. Um, having all those skills would just not be a good idea. What I would do, like you were saying, John, is if you if you want to have something like that, you should really institute knowledge-based skills that are extremely broad, like social sciences. And that would cover all your histories and all of your, you know, like if you had to make a, a Roman etiquette role, that would be your social sciences skill. Or if you well, had to know, you know, history of the, you know, Central American Indians, you know, that again – that would be your social sciences. And then maybe if it was something really obscure, you know, the game master can say, all right, but I'm going to make the target. Instead of the target number being a four, I'm going to make it a five or a six. This is referred to as skill level dilution. When you have the ability to just add in skills or you have a lot of or narrow skills, if you go and take your points, assuming that you're granted points as you advance, and then you take these and you divide them out amongst various skills, well, if you divide them out over 10 skills versus somebody who divides them out over only two skills, the person who's only doing the two skills is going to see a much bigger increase in ability in those two skills. And if you're able to just actually create skills on the fly, then you'll end up with uh, never getting very competent at anything. Jack of all trades, master of none, yes. Right. Now, if you're playing a game system where you're allowed to take new skills as uh, justified by use, I need to go motorboating in this particular adventure, so I'm going to go and start training under motorboats. You know, after uh, like a week, you can go and roll X number of skill levels and motorboat, in which case, you know, you get X amount 
plus maybe a variance, and then you say, okay, I've got that. Now, you didn't have to earn a level to get that. You just got it because you took a training and you were assigned that amount. Other people can do the same thing. They, there has to be something in your system that deals with this, the idea of saying, well, I'm just going to do nothing but work on my shooting. So while you guys are learning motorboat, I'm going to be level 25, 30, 40, whatever amazing level is in your system of this particular one thing because you spent that time doing only that. So you, know, you have to be able to deal with if you don't cap uh, – rises in skills, then you end up with some people with a really amazing skills and nothing else. They just do this one thing really, really amazing well and nothing else good. And other people who do a whole bunch of things mediocrely. So it's all part of your game system, how they handle that. And a lot of ways that they do that in subsystems is to simply say, you only get improvements for skills you use. So if you're using motorboating all the time, then your motorboating is going to go up. You start with a relatively low amount of skill because that refers to your initial training. But after that, you don't train except at, through use. So, but D20 Modern doesn't do that. D20 Modern says, hey, you, know, you get X number of skill points based upon the classes you chose. And then you have to turn around and apply them to, a very, you know, to, to quite a few skills that are there already. So you don't want to add new skills unless it really makes a significant difference. And we, when we made the new edition of Fringeworthy, we only added one skill, crystal use. That's it. Yep. Everything else remained exactly the same. Things like alien technology and Tamelaran technology, that all falls under knowledge technology. For my game, I told the players, during the past couple weeks, you've been going through intensive Roman you know, crash course on, on Roman culture and so forth. You can make a common knowledge role to remember this stuff. In Savage Worlds, is that you make a common knowledge roll, and, and basically I give them the excuse to have the common knowledge by going through a, a crash course. So we refer to this as a story award, right? Yeah, story awards. They can remember a lot of stuff just by making a common knowledge roll. In D20 Modern, if you make a DC 10 skill roll uh, for a knowledge check, you get general knowledge. Anybody can do it, even if you have no ranks in a knowledge skill. Well, here, here's, one, here's one more thing um, for Savage Worlds, is that you can have these things called defining interests. And they basically uh, allow you to make an unmodified role for um, a general knowledge skill. So if you had defining interests, Roman history, uh, you could then make a, just make a general knowledge role without any kind of modifier you know, and, and know what you need to know about that, that subject. So that's another way to go about it. And defining interests, I think you know, normally you have to pay for them, but I could see a game master... Uh, just awarding them because they don't really give you uh, an extra skill or anything like that. They're just they're they're basically fill that role that you're talking about. You know, it's it's like these characters are not trying to become an expert in this. They're just trying to become uh, at least somewhat knowledgeable in it, so that they're not complete idiots when that time comes around. Yeah, what I was looking at was basically they'd gone through a crash course. He's like studying for a test, spending three weeks studying to, for the test of in Rome. You know, right. ancient Rome. There's no guarantee you, you actually remember this stuff uh, two months later. Right, but John, you could have given that to him as a defining interest, and that would, that yeah. would fit that role. Uh, the, the, the point here is, is that in as far as D20 Monitor is concerned, you don't want to make up new categories of knowledge or new skills unless you can possibly avoid it so that the, the points that you get will be most effectively used to raise your competency in these other things. Always try to find some place under the umbrella of the existing skills for any of the skills that you might want to have, e- even if it takes a little bit of shoehorning. John, yeah. I found it. It's in the ravaged earth. 
Okay, yeah, it's it's one of the uh, the new additions called defining interests, and you start out with a number of defining interests depending on half your smart score. What we're doing in the Sarah's Rose book is going to be based off of Pinnacle published information. I hate to say it, any third party stuff we really can't use. So if it's third party, we right. can't use it. <laughs> yeah. But the GMs can use it. The GMs, oh, yeah, can use it. GMs, yeah. Of course, we can always scratch up the certain numbers and say, "Oh, here's our, our here's our take on this idea." You know, everyone <laughs> does that yeah. too. <laughs> There's a lot of great stuff out there for any of the systems that you might want to run your game under, and don't feel that don't be limited to just what's officially in the SRD of the various games, or even uh, what's in the Fringeworthy book. You know, we're we're not uh, system snobs here. You know, we think that a good idea is a good idea. So, as a GM, you shouldn't be limited by that. Feel free to grab and choose from everything that you have access to to make the best possible game. And, and uh, have we actually answered his question, though? Or the, the question you said, is there such a thing as an essential skill? Did they actually have something we call essential? I mean, this is where having a team comes in handy, because the team yeah. can cover the areas you can't possibly right. cover. I would say that if there is such a thing as an essential skill uh, in D20 Modern, it would probably be spot. Yeah. Yep. Yes. <laughs> yep. Yes. Note, and notice in, in Savage Worlds. <laughs> yes. Uh, the one thing I, I will say is... Uh, the one thing you can't do is be a super specialist because we've already discussed this before, but in French where the, a guy who is a super specialist, someone who's only good at one thing will not last in the French pass very long. Not unless you have a really big party. Right. I mean, well, you can travel with a team, but at some point you're going to get separated from your team or, uh, well, there's some people who can get, get, okay. The face person, the person who has all the social skills, he can specialize in that, and if he doesn't separate, he has a darn good chance of actually talking himself out of the situations he's in. Yeah, but what if he gets cornered and he has to fight his way out? Well, if he's yeah. got himself in that situation, then the player is not playing his character right then. Oh, no, no, no I'm saying he gets, he gets cornered. <laughs> he, he's, he's walking through the woods. He gets, you know, he gets isolated. He fall, gets knocked out of a truck or something. He winds up in the woods, and a bear corners him against a tree. I'm just saying. The, dead. That, that's, what I mean by <laughs> yeah. super, that's what I mean by super specialist. In other words, they're only good at one thing. And Fringeworthy, I think that that is a fatal flaw. I think you need to spread your skills around a little bit. You can be a specialist at something that's not a problem, but you know you kind of need to touch on a lot of different things, which is why um, I don't think Fringeworthy characters who are combat machines are long for the game because while they're great at fighting, when it comes to any other situation, they've spent so much time concentrating on being a good fighter that you know they they're not they don't know social skills or they don't you know they don't know history or whatever. And they'll finally get to a point where they can't fight their way out of it, where they'll get somewhere where they, they need to talk their way out of it and they won't be able to. The essential thing to do is be good at something, but be yep. kind of good at a lot of things. Templates we provide, those are pretty much essential skills right there. They're the ones that IDET wants you to have, yep. which does cause everybody to have pretty high skills in diplomacy and, and treat injury and things like that. But, it, but you don't have to keep concentrating on those just because they are permanent class skills. It's your choice if you want to keep going down the party line or not. So I, I agree with what you're saying, John, and that is, and I think that was a good point that you brought up, that it was good that you were with the other people when you were rolling up your characters because that way you were able to say, okay, what do I need to do to not step on your spotlight and make sure I have some spotlight? So that was a good point. I think that all groups should always be together and when they make yep. their characters 
so that, you know, from a metagaming standpoint, everybody gets a character that's not going to be someone else's clone. If you just take the basic template and don't and never expand beyond that, then don't worry about it. But at least you got a basic level on that skill so that if it does, if it does come time for you to, to talk your way out of being shot by somebody, you might be able to do it. And it was also there to create the flavor of the previous editions. You know, the characters that were made in the previous editions, the most successful ones, were the ones that had these particular skills. You know, by bringing this in as an IDET package, which, by the way, does cost your character. I mean, it, it creates your character at a two levels higher than they would be otherwise. This, you know, makes your character similar to the kind of characters who had been in other campaigns in, in the Fringeworthy history. The other template we use, the one for the Tays, they're not the same. They have a completely different focus for the Victorians. Because you can bring in people from lots of different worlds, especially further on down the timeline, mm -hmm. there's lots of opportunities to create all kinds of packages, whether you want to use it or not. Because we had one character in our, our home campaign who said, you know, everybody's at 10th level plus two more levels because of the Fringeworthy package. How about if I just make my character at 12th level? And I said, okay, you don't have to do that. You can just go with a 12th-level character. And, of course, they made the character a swords person. Those extra two levels made a huge difference to that character. Thanks again for joining us for the Fringeworthy broadcast. This is Bruce uh, with all the rest of the TriTech development team. We appreciate that you guys send us your mail. We hope that we'll hear more from you. Hope that uh, these podcasts are helping your campaign, and if they are, let us know because we want to enjoy how awesome your campaign can be. So please come to our demos because we'd really love to show Friendsworthy to you. Until our next demo, this is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there. So go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. And this is Blix. Remember, bullets speak louder than words. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Thank you.